So have you ever seen or heard or texted the letters FTW? If you are a gamer, then you possibly have used the letters FTW to give a crafty shout-out over your latest MMORPG victory. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it, because I don't know what it is either. I'm just reading. If you're a baller, then you may have used those three letters when you jumped off of the sofa with chips and dip flying all over the place as Steph or LeBron let one fly at the buzzer. If you are a hip announcer at the Olympics, then you could have this week dropped an FTW when you were trying to announce that Michael Phelps had touched the wall again for one of his gold medals. So what is FTW? Well, FTW is very simply, some of you know, for the win. For the win. So as an acronym, FTW has only been kind of popular in culture for about 10 or 15 years. But the phrase, for the win, has been around for a long time. Some people would trace its roots back to the TV game show, Hollywood Squares. Now, if you've ever seen Hollywood Squares, the the studio was fantastic. It was this big, huge, gigantic tic-tac-toe game. And each little box had a celebrity, and the celebrities were the X and the O's, and you would answer questions, and you'd get an X or you'd get an O, and, and then you'd try to work your way through. So it wouldn't be rare for you to hear someone say, hey, I'll take Paul Lynn for the win. And if you don't know who Paul Lynn is, then maybe you've never watched Bewitched. But somebody might say, I'll take Uncle Arthur for the win. And Uncle Arthur helped a lot of people win some dough on that show. But notice in each of these examples that I have given, the FTW was strategically connected to the END. The win was always connected to the end of the game. When things were over, it happened finally. Whether it's winning a gold medal or or winning a game at the last shot, or whether it's getting tic-tac-toe on Hollywood Squares. The win is connected to the end. But what if it was different? What if the win was actually connected to the beginning? What if your ability to win was actually determined by how you start? What happens at the very beginning actually decides whether you win or whether you lose? The first group of people that followed Jesus as a church, they won. They were winners. They were FTW people. And how do we know that? Well, This church is here. We exist. And not just our church, but we can ride up and down the road. Every single church in our community exists because of this first church. And there's churches all over the world that exist because of this first church. The first church, they won. And so what was their key to victory? What what was the thing that helped them win? Well, let's find out. Listen to Acts 2, the very... Last part of verse 42 is what we'll focus on, but listen to the first part. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So the people in the first church, they were not annually devoted. They were not monthly devoted. They were not weekly devoted. They were continually devoted. 
Following Jesus was not something they put on their resume underneath civic clubs and professional organizations. Following Jesus was who they were. I quote this passage a lot, this quote from Jesus, partly because it's kind of a big deal. Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if in your mind, first, you are a husband, or you are a wife first, or you're a father first, or you're a mother first, if you're first a a teacher or a student or an athlete, if you're first a, a homemaker or an engineer or a minister or an accountant or a truck driver or a doctor or a waitress or an IT guy or a lawyer or a salesman, a mechanic, if first you're a Gamecock, a Tiger, or an American, then you may not be a Christian. Because the very call to follow Jesus is a first call. It's not a secondary call. It's not a third call. It's not somewhere down the line. To be a Christian means you're a Christian first and most all the time and twice on Sundays. See, Jesus never lowers the bar. He never did. He never has. See, Jesus didn't suffer and die on the cross so that we could memorize enough Bible verses to maybe win a bronze medal in Christianity. No, Jesus suffered and died on the cross to rescue us from sin and to give us hope. Hope for every single moment of life and hope for when this life is over. The call of Jesus is a call of ultimate allegiance. It's a call of primary devotion. It's not a call of perfect devotion. We cannot perfectly devote ourselves to Jesus. We can't always do everything right. We're still going to sin. We're still going to occasionally make a huge mess of things in our lives, either through our arrogance or through our apathy. It's not perfection we're speaking of, but to continually devote yourself to Jesus just means this, that following Jesus is not just a comfortable, casual, extracurricular activity in your life. Following Jesus is something that involves contending for your faith. You're fighting for your faith. You're fighting through sin. You're fighting through pride. You're fighting through anger and laziness and lust and whining and complaining. You're even fighting through despair and discouragement so that after the fight, you can see again how much light and how much life and how much hope and how much joy is in salvation in Jesus. We are continually devoting ourselves to Jesus because Jesus is the greatest treasure. We're we're fighting to help our hearts see that Jesus is the greatest and most satisfying treasure in the universe. Some days that fight feels impossible, doesn't it? Some days it feels like you can't take another step, much less can you fight for your salvation. But remember this. We don't define our life by our feelings. As believers, what we do is we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again, all day long, all week long, all month long. We keep telling ourselves these things about Jesus are real and true. And why do we do that? Well, we do that so that our minds and our hearts will have a lot of opportunities to breathe in the truth of God 
instead of being suffocated by the lies of sin or the stress of our troubles and our trials. We keep preaching to ourselves. We keep telling ourselves, you know what? This stuff about Jesus, man, it is so true and so real. And you know what's really rewarding about being continually devoted to Jesus? Is it changes your life. See, being continually devoted to Jesus, it makes you a better husband, a better wife, a better father or mother, a better teacher or student or athlete or homemaker, a better engineer or accountant or minister or lawyer or waitress or truck driver or doctor. Makes you a better mechanic. Makes you a better Gamecock. Makes you a better Tiger. Makes you a better American. Not a perfect one, but a better one. Why? Because everything gets switched up. We're striving to honor Jesus first and most. We're not trying to get a dad of the year mug. And we're not trying to get a mom of the year apron. And we're not trying to get a gold watch for being with the company for 30 years. Everything shifts because we're fighting for joy in our salvation. For lack of a better word, we're keeping our faith. To be continually devoted to Jesus has a fantastic and major impact and influence on every part of your life. It's not perfect devotion. It's just continual devotion. You just keep on keeping on. So how did the first church keep on keeping on? What were they continually devoted to? Well, again, we've looked at it these last few weeks. They were continually devoted to God's truth. They were continually devoted to sharing life together. They were continually devoted to to meeting and eating together. They were continually devoted to remembering Jesus together. This is who they were. And you know, every single time I look at some of these dynamics of the first church, you know what really strikes me? Is that this first church was very simple. They were uncluttered and they were ordinary. And it is the ordinary that makes them so extraordinary. The ordinary part of this church is why we look at them. And I will say this, as a church As Christians in 2016, we need to catch or recatch this idea of ordinary. Jody mentioned Tom Rainer earlier. Rainer is a church researcher. He's been a pastor. He's a leader. Rainer recently wrote that 90% of our churches are losing ground in their communities. What that means is 90% of our churches are either dying a slow death or are already dead when it comes to influencing the community that they're in, the community where they are. We're not talking about the the ends of the earth. They're not even impacting their own community. So we need to pump up the volume, and we need to pump up the programs, and we need to pump up the revival meetings and parade in some more preachers, right? Is that that what the first church did? Was that the blueprint they used to make sure that the gospel got to South Carolina? No, that wasn't their blueprint. The first church was what? They were simple, they were uncluttered, and they were ordinary. Ordinary church. An ordinary church changed your world. 
an ordinary group of people changed your world. So when we think of church today, when we think of the concept of church, do the words simple, uncluttered, and ordinary pop into our minds first, or are we thinking something different? One pastor put it this way, it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him, for they must be wooed to meeting with a stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments. By the way, that's not a recent quote. That's from A.W. Tozer more than 53 years ago. See, I think sometimes we think of our immoral culture and we think of the, the dramatic decline in people attending any kind of church as something that happened like in the early 2000s. But the reality is it's not a new problem. In fact, it's been going on all the way back to the very first garden. Stepping away from God, walking away from God, doing our own thing is something that's been around for a long time. Vance Havner had a wide scope of ministry, part of which he was the pastor of the historic First Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Havner said this once, We Southern Baptists are many, but we're not much. It has the idea of if we are a mile wide numerically, but we're an inch deep spiritually. In 1954, there was a campaign to try to get people to join Sunday school classes The name of the campaign was A Million More in 54. This is what Havner said about that. If we get a million more like we got in 54, we're sunk. Old Vance, he had a hard time speaking his mind, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm very thankful to be a Southern Baptist, and and I believe as a younger Southern Baptist pastor that some of our best years as a denomination are in the next few years and the years ahead. And I am confident that of the million people in 54, some of them really got saved, and some of those people have led their children and their grandchildren to the Lord. No doubt. But I think what Havner was doing more than 60 years ago was trying to raise a little red flag to help remind us that you can grow without growing and that you can win without winning. What does that mean? How can you win without winning? That doesn't even make any sense. Is that like having your gold medal taken away from you by the judges because they found out that you were using bacon-enhanced energy bars, you know, to get a leg up on the competition? No, it's not about having your medal taken away. It's something completely different. And so how was it that the first church grew? How did they win? How did they have real growth instead of just superficial numbers? How did they really win instead of just having a religious score? What was the key to their life? Listen to the last part of verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Their winning edge was prayer. What helped them win was prayer. And that prayer began before they started. They won before they started because they begged God for more of God before they tried to go do something for God. They prayed together. They prayed together at church. They prayed together in homes. They prayed together wherever they were. 
So what do you think of when you hear the word prayer? Do you think of just what you're supposed to do before you dig into grandma's pot roast? Do you think of just what the team does and recites before they leave the locker room? Is prayer just that thing that, that the pastor only does, you know, on Sunday morning? The people in the very first church were thrown into prison for being in the very first church. And there were other people in the very first church that had stuff stolen from their houses because they were nice to the people who were thrown in prison because of being in the very first church. The first church and the early churches that followed after them, they were beaten, they were tortured, they were executed for following Jesus. And so it seems unlikely that when they met together and they broke bread together, there was just some guy who stood up and said, hey, before we start, let me say a little something here. Uh, God is great. God is good. I just thank him for the. All right, let's dig in. Let's dig in. And it seems unlikely that when they gathered together to, to take up an offering for some bail money for the young mom who had been thrown in jail for her faith in Christ, it seems unlikely that there would be one guy that stands up and says, all right, hang on, uh, Lord, bless the gift and the giver. All right, let's, let's take up some money. That doesn't mean that they sat around and had 73-minute prayers with fancy words. But because of what we know about the early church, their prayers were just like who they were. They were simple, they were uncluttered, and they were ordinary. But what made them extraordinary is that they were ordinary. I mean, can you imagine what some of their prayers would have been like? Can you imagine the scene of of sitting with the early church maybe on a Sunday morning? And someone prays, Lord, we rejoice in our persecution because this suffering for Jesus is helping us see him and know him and love him a little better. And God, thank you for helping the apostles remind us that our inheritance cannot be stolen. And our inheritance cannot be beaten out of us because our inheritance is with you. God, thank you for sealing our souls. Or maybe in a a midweek group in someone's home, someone prays, God, please be with Kalina and with Julia. We don't know where the guards took them last night, but God, you know where they are. And so God, would you help them? Would you strengthen them? God, would you help them to see and feel and know that Jesus is risen and he is risen indeed. See, they were continually devoted to prayer in a way that's foreign to us. But it was still simple. It was uncluttered. It was ordinary, but it was real. Their prayers together was real. One day Jesus was teaching, and this is what Luke recorded about the moment. Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray. At all times. The first church, they got that. They understood that they needed to be praying all the time. Their needs were great. There was a lot going on. There was a lot happening. Now, again, when we see things in the Bible about praying at all times and pray without ceasing, again, let me just casually remind you, if you decide to pray when you drive, please keep your eyes open. You know, we'd like to see you next Sunday. 
But at all times, without ceasing, means that there's this understanding we need God all the time. We need him all the time. The early church got that. They were continually devoted to praying for no other reason than they realized they had nobody but each other and Jesus. That's kind of a big deal if you think about it. They had no one to turn to but Jesus and one another. And so they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. They prayed often, and they prayed, according to the Scriptures, steadfastly. To be steadfast means to continue. It means to persevere, to endure, to to hang in there. These folks prayed in such a way as if they were training for an Olympic gold medal. They prayed in such a way like they were boxers, and they were giving it all they had till they heard the final bell of the final round. They were giving everything they had to their prayer life. The Apostle Paul was dramatically saved on the road to Damascus. He spent his first few days as a Christian in Damascus. Today, Damascus is the second largest city in Syria. The first is Aleppo. Damascus this morning is a deadly war zone. Some of the fiercest fighting has been happening around Damascus. I came across a picture this week from Rodi Said of Reuters. And it's a picture that was taken because an area had been liberated. The people had been freed in this one little area near Damascus, I believe. And the picture was captivating to me because on one side of the picture you you see the, the joy that some release has happened. But then in the corner is this little girl. And the only look on her face is not one of joy. It's one of terror. And when I saw that face this week, my thought was, this is her life all day long. No TV, no video games, no playing in the sprinkler in the backyard. Her life is defined by terror. Her life is defined by anxiety. Relief workers have been pleading for a ceasefire just for 48 hours so that they can get doctors and and nurses and aid workers to go into these areas around Damascus and Aleppo just to try to help the people who are there. They can't even get people in to help. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a hard time getting a doctor's appointment? My parents are in their early 80s, so I, I hear all kind of interesting stories about getting doctor's appointments these days. Have you ever had a hard time getting one? Do they, they tell you, um, all right, we'll make one for you six months from now, you know, when you want one six days from now? You know? I heard a stat this week that there's two million people in Aleppo, and because of the war, there's only 15 doctors available. Two million people, 15 doctors. We've got about, what, 4.7 million people in the state of South Carolina? How many doctors are just in your primary care office? Three, four, five, six. Fifteen doctors for two million people, and not fifteen doctors for two million people for well visits. Fifteen doctors for two million people in the middle of a deadly war. There's a sense of desperation in their lives. Now imagine you're a Christian in Aleppo. And you're experiencing this war around you. You're experiencing, maybe in your own family, the inability to get the help that you need. You are learning what it means to cry out to God. You're learning what it means to be continually devoted 
to prayer. It's not just a small thing that you do anymore. 90% of our churches are losing ground in their communities. Why? Well, it's because they've lost their desperation. They've, they've lost their devotion. They're spiritually poor. Not financially poor. In fact, there's a lot of churches that have a lot of money in the bank and, and they're just going to ride it out until the last person quits coming. So it's not financial, it's, it's spiritual. And what kind of poverty are we talking about? Leonard Ravenhill said this, Poverty stricken as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. And then he says this, We have many organizers but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. That's worth another listen. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. And then he says this. Failing here, we fail everywhere. When the church fails to pray, she fails everywhere. If that doesn't make any sense, let me see if I can clarify. When we fail to pray, it doesn't just affect our church. It affects your marriage. It affects your kids and your grandkids. It affects this community. It affects our nation and our country and our world. When we, just this one church, when we fail to pray, we actually fail everywhere. Here's the thing. The first church, they didn't fail. They, they didn't fail. They were clingers. They had tears. They had passion. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed because they knew they were dependent on God. They knew they needed God. They knew they were desperately dependent on God, but they also knew that they were completely safe and secure with God, that he was never going to leave them, that he was never going to forsake them. And let me just encourage you with this. That promise has not expired, and it never will. He does not leave. He does not forsake. I told the Next Steps luncheon a few weeks ago that I'm having more fun at Holland Avenue than I've had in 22 years of ministry. It's just a blast. But I'm also mentally exhausted. Three brain surgeries have come my way this week. There's tons of cancer connected to our church. There's, there's problems with people's marriages and problems with people's kids. There's, there's problems, you know, with, with a building that's growing older. There's, there's problems that come up about every 30 minutes. But you know what? Here's what's great. For all those problems... I literally have Jesus. <laughs> I don't always call on him, but, but he's there. He's ready and willing, waiting for me. And so it's fun. I'm, I'm having a blast. But you know what? I want to have more than fun. I want to win. I haven't even been here two years yet. 
But I, but I want to win. Now, I, I don't want to win in that weird, arrogant, selfish way, you know, that gets me a, a book deal or a movie deal or an action figure, you know. I don't know. An action figure could be cool. I don't know. No, I want to win in the way that we become the simple, uncluttered, ordinary church. That this becomes a place where there's only one attraction, and that attraction is God. That when we gather here, the one true God who is majestic and holy and awesome and power and love, in fact, he so intensely loves us that he sent his only son to purchase the payment of our sin. I want the attraction to be him. Our God is greater. Our God is higher. Our God is more powerful and stronger than anything we can possibly imagine. And I want you to know something. As I listen to you laugh, as I watch you smile, as I see you cry, as I see you serve, as I see you hug, as I see you shake hands, as I see you give, as I see everything that you are doing in the life of this church, it gets me pretty excited that God is moving us to be that ordinary church. He has been working in this church for years in unique ways, and he's beginning to unfold that before our very eyes. But I want you to know something. We can miss it completely. We can get off track in a blink of an eye. Tom Rainer says this. When we talk about the concept of being an ordinary church, he reminds us the one thing that we need the most. I have never seen successful and sustaining change take place in a church without prayer. That's another line to repeat. I have never seen successful and sustaining change take place in a church without prayer. But look, I want you to know this this isn't just about this church. This is about your marriage. And this is about your family. And it's about your job. It's about your health issues. It's about your stress issues. Successful, sustaining only comes with prayer. So I'm not going to announce any new prayer groups today. Not starting up any, necessarily. Not going to give you a guilt trip about showing up at at prayer groups or prayer meetings. I'm just going to plead with us to do four simple, uncluttered, ordinary things. And here they are, just four quick things. One, pray. Two, pray more. Three, pray different. Four, pray desperate. Pray, pray more, pray different, or pray desperate. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't pray at all. Just start praying. If you don't know what to say, no big deal. Just give it a shot. Just start talking to God. Use your Bible as as some language to kind of help you get started in communicating with God. If you pray some, pray more. Pray with your spouse before the end of the day today. Pray with your kids or your grandkids before next Sunday. If you pray often, then then pray different. Pray different today at lunch when you sit down in the restaurant to bless the food. Pray different if you're called on to pray in Sunday school. Pray different if you're a a deacon or an usher and you you pray on Sunday mornings. Pray, Pray different. And for all of us, pray desperate.
pray with with more devotion, a, a desperate sense of how much we need God for the next step. I don't think we realize how much that is true. To make it home today, you'll need God. To make it to tomorrow, you'll need God. To make it to the end of the service, to keep breathing, you'll need God. We, we are desperate for him. But why should we do that? I mean, why should we pray? Why should we be more desperate in our prayers? Why should we be more devoted? Why should we be continually devoted to prayer? The Apostle Paul said this to the church at Corinth. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We continually devote ourselves to prayer so that we will remember Jesus. We continually devote ourselves to prayer so that we'll remember that Jesus has purchased the penalty of our sins, that Jesus has already won for us. See, we continually devote ourselves to prayer because Jesus has already bought our FTW. See, we devote ourselves to prayer for the win. Because in Christ, we have already 